Welcome to a Friday night edition of Tisky Sour. We have loads of massive stories for you tonight. Proverbial rats, flee Boris Johnson's sinking ship. The governor of the Bank of England has declared class war. The corporate media is once again taking the US intelligence services at their word, this time relating to Russia. And we end on an exclusive about The Guardian. We dropped that on nabarramedia.com, our website today. We're going to talk about it later in the show. I'll be speaking to Rivka Brown, one of our excellent reporters. I'm joined throughout the show by Ash Sarko. How are you doing, Ash? I'm very well, thank you, Michael. I'm just happy that I get to see you on a Friday night for once. It feels like the beginning of the weekend. Boris Johnson has lost five of his most senior aides. The three who resigned last night were as follows. Dan Rosenfield, Johnson's chief of staff. Rosenfield's job title meant he was likely to carry a large part of the can for Partygate. Jack Doyle has also gone. He was Johnson's director of communications and so has responsibility for the disastrous denials and evasions which have come from Downing Street in the past weeks. And Martin Reynolds, Johnson's personal private secretary, is also out. Reynolds sent the leaked email inviting 100 officials to a garden party during lockdown. As all three men were implicated in Partygate, their departures could be easily framed by Johnson's allies as part of a promised clear out to reboot the chaotic Downing Street operation. But those resignations were preceded by one which undermined any narrative that this was all about Boris Johnson asserting control. Manira Mirza was until yesterday head of the Downing Street Policy Unit. Mirza was closer to Boris Johnson than the other departees, having advised him for over 14 years. Years when Boris Johnson was mayor of London, Mirza worked as his arts advisor before being promoted to become his deputy mayor for education and culture. Johnson once described Mirza as one of the five most influential women in his life. In her resignation letter, Mirza wrote, I believe it was wrong for you to imply this week that Keir Starmer was personally responsible for allowing Jimmy Savile to escape justice. There was no fair or reasonable basis for that assertion. This was not the usual cut and thrust of politics. It was an inappropriate and partisan reference to a horrendous case of child sex abuse. You tried to clarify your position today, but despite my urging, you did not apologize for the misleading impression you gave. You are a better man than many of your detractors will ever understand, which is why it is so desperately sad that you let yourself down by making a scurrilous accusation against the leader of the opposition. The non-apology Mirza referred to there was this. Let's be absolutely clear. I'm, I'm talking not about uh, the leader of the opposition's personal um, record when he was, uh, when he was DPP. Uh, and, and, I, and I totally understand that he had nothing to do uh, personally with those decisions. I was making a point about um, the, his responsibility for the organisation uh, as a whole. And I think people can, can see that. And I, just, I really do want to clarify that because it is... It is important. That clarification wasn't good enough for Mirza, and her departure has apparently left Johnson in despair. A Downing Street official told Politico, Boris will feel more sorrow than Mary did watching Christ on the cross. It's that level of void left in his life. Politico also quote a Downing Street official saying, as of this morning, no one in her team had any inkling that she was going to go. It's left a gaping hole in the building. Several people are in tears and colleagues will be considering their own positions. All bets are off now. This is huge. It's unclear whether the two quotes are from the same person. However, despite Merz's resignation so clearly being an unexpected blow to the PM, Johnson's allies didn't change their script. This was Energy Minister Greg Hans on Sky this morning. 
let's not forget that on Monday, the Prime Minister, when responding uh, to the Sue Gray report update, made clear that there would be changes at the top in number 10. Uh, resignations have been made. Resignations have been accepted. These are all people who've done fantastic uh, service uh, to the country uh, throughout the pandemic in, in almost all of those cases. And we should be thankful for them for their service. But the Prime Minister was absolutely clear on Monday uh, that there will be changes at the top in number 10. And that is what he's delivered. The PM promised changes at the top. And that's what he delivered. That was the message from Greg Hands. And it mirrored the message given by Johnson's allies on the backbenches last night. Among those was Michael Fabricant. He tweeted, the PM promised changes to the number 10 operation at the 1922 on Monday, and it's good to see action is now swiftly being taken. Joy Morrissey MP tweeted, the PM promised changes to the number 10 operation earlier this week. Glad to see him delivering tonight. Chris Clarkson tweeted, earlier this week, the PM promised the Parliamentary Party swift and decisive change at number 10 to get us back on course and focused on people's priorities. Pleased to see true to his word he's delivering. And Stuart Anderson tweeted, on Monday, Boris Johnson promised MPs change. Tonight we see that change starting to happen and I welcome this quick action by the Prime Minister. If this all feels a bit scripted, it's because, well, it is. A message was leaked from a Tory WhatsApp group with a link to Stuart Anderson's tweet that I just showed you. An MP in the group then says, see Stuart's tweet acknowledging the changes the PM promised on Monday is now underway. Please do retweet, or better still, craft your own short tweet. Let's show everyone that the PM means business. That was last night. This morning, a fifth advisor resigned. That was Elena Norzansky, who worked with Manira Mirza in the policy unit. Ash, the Tories are desperately clinging to the line that Boris Johnson is in control of events in Downing Street. Do you think any of them actually believe it? No, and I'll tell you what the dead giveaway is. If you go back to that Greg Hans interview, he is speaking so slowly and laboriously that it's like a child remembering their lines in the school nativity. You know, when you were the narrator and you had to be like, and then the three kings followed the star and you were just terrified that you'd completely cock it up. He has got the exact same emotional affect and that's because he doesn't believe a word that he's saying. The leaked message from the Tory WhatsApp chat, it really reminded me of this footballer who tweeted in its entirety, can you tweet something like fantastic effort today, lads? Not the result we were hoping for, but we keep going. You can tell when conservatives are tweeting under duress because one, the lines that they're peddling are completely unconvincing. Two, so is the manner of their delivery. And three, the instruction that's being given to them will end up being leaked to a political lobby journalist at some point. I don't think that there is a way to convincingly spin this as a sign that Boris Johnson is regaining control of Downing Street. Because sure, Martin Reynolds and Jack Doyle might have been prime names for a heave-ho from Downing Street, but the fact that they jumped before they were pushed doesn't really send signals that it's within the Prime Minister's power to determine whether or not they're part of the clear-out. And Manira Mirza, who... By the way, I'm very grateful for having a name which is very punnable because, as you know, Michael, every Friday I write the Cortado and I had some great options. We went with out in the streets, they call it Mirza, but I also could have gone with Mirza She Wrote or Mirza on the Dance Floor. And for that, <laughs> I thank you. I always like it when you're cackling in the background. 
But you can't really spin it as she was someone who would be deeply implicated in Partygate because the inside line is that she's been marginalized for quite a few months. And that is, ironically, because of some of the political positioning done by Dan Rosenfield, who also entered his resignation yesterday. So Munira Mirza was physically distanced from Downing Street. They literally set up shop in the cabinet office instead. So while I wouldn't go so far as to think, oh, she's got completely clean hands, she probably had no idea about the drinking culture, I think it is perhaps fair to say that she isn't as closely implicated as the likes of Jack Doyle or indeed Martin Reynolds. And because of that, you definitely can't spin this as Boris Johnson clearing out the old rubbish. This is much more of a case of political operators who have one eye on their advancement fleeing before they're pushed or before their names are so tarnished that they can't get a better job down the line. Yeah, let's let's do some pop psychology. Is this Manira Mirza, you know, genuinely outraged that Boris Johnson deigned to mention Jimmy Savile at PMQs, or is she just leaving because she she knows that Boris Johnson is on the way out and she'd prefer to leave of her own accord and sort of have have an active role in the story as well, uh, instead of just being victim to his downfall? I'm not ruling out the possibility that a senior conservative aide has suddenly had a bout of integrity. All things are possible with the power of God. But I find it difficult to believe that Manira Mirza, who is one of the chief architects of the government's culture wars turn, would feel then so strongly about playing to a right-wing populist hymn book by mobilizing this Jimmy Savile smear. The reasons why I think this is because, one, she is not above straw-manning her opponents herself, so she will often paint a picture of a censorious left who cannot abide ethnic minority advancement, and that's while at the same time she pushes flimsy reports headed up by Tony Sewell, which are intended to debunk the existence of institutional racism. And secondly... Frank Ferredi, who was her old sociology lecturer back at university and, of course, also comes from that revolutionary communist party living Marxism spiked online backdrop, wrote a book not that long ago condemning what he called the moral crusade against Jimmy Savile. So if the smear against Keir Starmer was a bridge too far, I think it would indicate a real 180 in terms of her own political and moral compass. And I find it difficult to believe that that has happened at this moment. That title from a Frank Peretti book, that's that's a very interesting context. We talked a lot about the, the Savile-Starmer route um, that is still running. Two key um, cabinet members have been asked about it recently. Rishi Sunak is the first one I have for you. He chose to distance himself from Johnson's original Starmer-Savile comments. And with regard to the comments, in you know being being honest, I wouldn't have said it, and I'm glad that the prime minister clarified what he meant. Today, Sajid Javid was also questioned about Johnson's comments about Starmer and ended up showering praise on the Labour leader. Running the the, the DPP you know, did did a good job, and he should be respected for it. It's a tough job, and he should he deserves absolute respect uh, for that. But the prime minister has also uh, come out and he's clarified those remarks, and that's important. Would you have used that sort? The, the Prime Minister has clarified the remarks and, and that's important. And and what I what I will be doing is actually getting on with my job, uh, which is what I'm doing today on World Cancer Day. Does he still enjoy your support? The Prime Minister, of course he does, absolutely. 
So Boris Johnson has Sajid Javid's support, though it sounds a bit like he'd prefer to have Keir Starmer as his boss. Ash, I want your comments on this. Have you been surprised by how quickly kind of everyone across the political spectrum, it seems, sort of top liberal journalists, now Tory cabinet members, have all sided essentially with Keir Starmer when it comes to to a smear thrown at him from, from Boris Johnson. It's a bit of a turnaround from, let's say, the last five years when there was a different leader of the opposition. Well, sure. It is a real about turn that suddenly everybody is against smears which are below the belt or have a basis purely in fiction. That was entirely part of the curtain thrust of politics and Jeremy Corbyn was leader. And Ed Miliband and Gordon Brown were also subject to smears as well. As Aaron has written at length for Navarra Media, Gordon Brown was belittled and essentially was accused of being medically unfit for the office of prime minister. Ed Miliband, of course, there were all sorts of dog whistles regarding his Jewish heritage, his father being presented as a man who hates Britain, and Jeremy Corbyn. I mean, where do we start? You had LBC journalists going on air to accuse him of wanting to reopen Auschwitz. He was presented as a terrorist sympathizer. He was accused of being a Czech spy. There was no smear or allegation too low or indeed too fanciful that it couldn't be applied to Jeremy Corbyn by journalists, by politicians and amplified by the mainstream media. So I think that what's happening now is not an indication of political morality, but what it shows is just how much the Johnson political currency has been devalued in recent months. I think there's also a certain irony in Sajid Javid can praising Keir Starmer to the high heavens because I might be remembering this wrong and I would love it if someone could go and check that I've got this right. But I think it was one of the debates in the run-up to the 2019 general election that Sajid Javid perhaps mobilised the Jimmy Savile line as well. This is a smear which has been in the political atmosphere since at least 2018, where it was first covered by Guido Fawkes. It's of course been a part of far-right telegram chats and, you know, that kind of subterranean communications network for a while as well. And Tories haven't been above mobilizing it before. It's just that now the atmosphere is very different in terms of the way in which the establishment relate to Keir Starmer as a Labour leader. And also because Johnson no longer has the kind of upward trajectory political momentum, which would allow him to brazen out any one of his his sins, his failings, his uh, failure to read the room. Yeah, I mean, I, I think it's almost partly that he's a sir. And, you know, so everyone's sort of like, well, we're not allowed to call establishment figures or associate establishment figures with paedophiles. I, f- I feel almost like it's because he's seen us so close to the establishment that it would be, you know, we, we can't let that, if I say let that cat out of the bag, it makes it seem like I do think he has a connection. Keir Starmer obviously does not have a significant connection to Jimmy Savile. But I, I think it is because he's knighted that no one is willing to accept this. When it was Jeremy Corbyn who they could sort of say, he's nothing to do with the establishment. He's an outsider. Smear away. Feel free. I do find it all a bit, it leaves a bad taste in my mouth. Let's just put it like that. Ash, I did a sneaky little look on Mike because I realised you had so many puns about Manira Mirza's name that you should have given them to some of the other Westminster journalists because it's, sort of, it's a tradition in, in these Westminster emails to do a pun. But Alex Wickham in the political email didn't have a pun at all. And Stephen Bush went for Manira, my God to me, which I don't even understand. Manira, my God to me is a hymn. I think right. about, I think some, maybe Jacob, 
had a vision. I don't know, right? This is how Muslim I am. I, I have no idea what this hymn is. But at least Stephen Bush made an attempt. And I've got to say <laughs> that back in the days of <laughs> Theresa May, he really, really flogged that dead horse of the surname being May. Um, also EU being you there were lots of song titles and he you know I can but stand on the shoulders of giants so Stephen Bush walked so that I could run I feel like you should have shared out you, you had so many good headlines you know that more people could have could have used the rejects next story Rishi Sunak has revealed his plan to help struggling families cope with the massive rise in fuel bills expected from April and it's pathetic in fact it's worse than pathetic it's offensive before we go into the details of the plan, let's look at the problem the Chancellor is supposedly trying to solve. That's the Ofgem, the energy regulator, has raised the cap on energy prices, apparently in response to global wholesale fuel hikes. Average annual fuel bills will be capped at just under £2,000. That means the average household will see an additional £693 per year on their electricity bill. That works out as £60 extra per month. Add to that the rise in national insurance that will also hit in April, as well as a freeze to income tax thresholds. And the Resolution Foundation projected that a typical household would be £1,300 worse off, more than £100 poorer per month, just like that. So in this climate of tightening belts, where some people will have to make hard choices between heating and other necessities, what did billionaire Rishi Sunak propose? Well, not a lot. Without government action... Today's increase in the price cap would leave households needing to find, on average, an extra £693 this year. That is clearly a very significant sum. So, for the vast majority of families, the government is taking direct action to share the burden. Today, we're announcing an energy bills rebate worth £350. You'll receive that cash support through two different routes. First, all electricity customers will receive an upfront discount worth £200. That discount will then be automatically repaid from people's bills over the next five years in equal instalments of £40 a year starting next April. This is the right way to support people while continuing with our responsible plans to reduce borrowing and debt. Second, we will pay a council tax rebate of £150 to all households in bands A to D, which covers around four out of every five households in England. The reason for doing this through the council tax system is because it's the quickest way to get monies to the families who most need it. So everybody gets a £200 loan to be paid back over four years, and households in bands A to D get £150 off their council tax. Now, the loan is basically a joke. The fuel cap isn't expected to go down any time soon. In fact, analysts believe it will go up again in October, potentially by another £500. A loan will therefore likely just add to an even bigger economic burden in future years. The council tax rebate will help poorer households, but it'll only do that if they pay council tax. Many renters, for example, have the council tax bundled up in their rent, but it doesn't seem likely that landlords will be passing the rebate back to them to help with their fuel bills. Finally, even if you do get the full £350 support, 200 of which is a loan, you're still likely to be nearly £1,000 worse off next year. 
That's including changes to, to energy bills and other changes I've mentioned already. Sunak's plans have been met with criticism. Here's Adam Scorer, CEO of National Energy Action. So I think what the Chancellor made a, an active choice was to go broad and shallow with something for everybody. And that's going to be hugely appreciated. Everyone gets hit by price rises. But he should have gone targeted and deep uh, to provide the support to people who are going to be hit hardest by these price rises. So what we've seen, £350, is going to be hugely welcome by, by everybody. And it's got lots of, of merit. But if you take the rise in October and the rise that's coming in April, it will still leave those on the lowest incomes facing a £500 price rise over the year. So unfortunately, it was wholly inadequate and they'll have to come back to this. The Resolution Foundation have shown that Sunak's plans will more than double the number of households in fuel stress defined as spending 10% of their household income on fuel. 9% of households are currently in fuel stress. With the raising of the price cap, that was set to go up to 26%. And Sunak's announcements have reduced that figure slightly, but only to 20%. That means one in five people are still set to be in fuel stress by the summer. That's double the figure now. Strikingly, on the same day that Sunak announced this woefully inadequate plan to support households, it was revealed that fuel provider Shell made £14.2 billion in profits last year. It's an increase of nearly £11 billion on last year's profits and works out as Shell making £27,000 per minute. Labour, amongst others, called for a windfall tax on fuel providers to help households with rocketing energy costs. We are speaking on the day in our country when millions of families are feeling desperate and you've got, you've got a major energy company, Shell, an oil and gas company, announcing $20 billion of profits, up from less than $5 billion of profits. And the government, instead of levying a windfall tax on their profits, which could have helped those poorest families, has said Shell can keep its billions. They've described it as a momentous day, the head of Shell today. It's one way of putting it. They can keep their profits and poor families will literally be faced with a choice between heating and eating. That's the Labour position and other countries are also showing there are alternatives to making consumers foot the bill for higher fuel prices. In France, the government have put a cap on the price energy giant EDF can charge consumers. The firm have said the decision means their market value could fall by 8.4 billion euros. But given the government own 85% of the firm, they can force them to take that hit. Thanks to that policy, price increases in France will be limited to 4%, which compares favourably to the 54% price rise we're going to see in Britain. Spain has also taken action there. Energy taxes have been suspended on household bills. That's funded by a windfall tax on energy giants which is similar to what Labour are proposing here. Ash, it's no secret that Rishi Sunak wants to be the next Prime Minister. Shouldn't that be motivation, reason for him to provide a little more help than he's currently offering? I think that there is something strategic here, which is that Rishi Sunak is, by his instincts, a lot more hawkish than a lot of his policy during the pandemic would suggest. He did really have to be bullied into providing furlough. He's not, by his nature a very big spender and he is also implacably opposed to borrowing. So I think you have to look at this refusal to impose a windfall tax to spread the pain, which really means concentrating it amongst the country's most deprived households and the country's lowest earners, as you have to see it within the context of also a planned hike 
in national insurance, which of course hits low wage workers hardest, and also the cut to the universal credit uplift, which is I think that Rishi Sunak sees himself as teaching the public a hard lesson. There's something mistrunchable about it, which is, well, if you want spending, you have to either have tax increases or cuts to public spending. And what we're not going to do is keep, in his words, energy prices artificially low, because that's you getting something for nothing. Now, there isn't a suggestion that energy giants shouldn't have their profits kept artificially high, which is, of course, the situation that we're now in. And that's a product of ideology, I think. There's a couple more things I'd like to add to this. And I do think that Labour's suggestions of a windfall tax are, are the right way to go. But this does show the necessity of not simply taking energy international ownership because of the degree of control that that gives you, which is what we've seen in France. But it also, I think, really just shows how urgent the shift to renewables are. Because at the moment, we're reliant on fossil fuels, which are volatile when it comes to the pricing. They're not getting any cheaper. And ultimately, we are going to run out of these things. There's only one direction that energy prices can go if we are to remain this dependent on on fossil fuels. Now, that's not the case when you look at the alternative technologies for heating homes, for example, air source heat pumps and ground source heat pumps. That's certainly not the case for wind, for solar and for hydro. I think there are also, of course, this is open for debate, discussions to be had around nuclear energy, just in terms of the amount of electricity it's capable of producing, even though nuclear technology doesn't go in the same direction as solar, wind and hydro in terms of getting cheaper and cheaper. But there is an economic case for shifting towards greener sources of energy. And what's incredibly worrying is that the Telegraph, the Daily Mail, and conservative backbenchers are trying to use this cost of living crisis as an excuse to back off from the government's piss poor net zero commitments and to completely trash the idea that we have to shift towards renewables at all. Now, that's not just an act of climate vandalism, but it's economically illiterate. It is condemning consumers to decades of volatility and decades of expensive energy simply because they're implacably opposed to what has to be done to shift towards green energy production. I want to go to a tweet which is relevant to something I saw you tweet over the last 24 hours, Ash. Caroline Divio tweets on the hashtag Tisky Sour, with all the squeezes by government, why aren't the British not out on the street? Or why are the British not out on the street? We leave the poor hanging. As long as the middle class can afford it, who cares? How bad do things need to get before people get out of their comfort zone? France would be on fire. Now, I say this relates to a tweet you wrote, Ash, because I think you said, I have most of them ingrained in, in my mind, something along the lines of, in France, when they raise bills, they set fire to things. Hence, they've only got a 4% rise to their energy costs. In Britain, we wait for Marina Hyde to write a stinging comment piece. And that's why we're getting 54% price rises. Can you, can you explain the thinking behind your message there? Like most of my jokes, it was also deadly serious. I think that when you compare the populations, the UK is a lot more passive. Now, I don't think that that's anything to do with national character or culture. I think it's because the forces which produce class consciousness of social housing, trade union membership, heavy industry, all of these things have become a lot more dispersed over the last decades. And then what that means is that there isn't necessarily a solid and singular expression 
of working class anger in the same way. I think that's also why aspects of the working class can be turned against each other so effectively. You see that with the shift towards culture wars. You see that in terms of the Brexit referendum turning young against old, city against town. These are classes of people in this country who have the same material interests, but they don't experience it that way. Whereas in France, I think you have the radical tradition being kept alive a lot more. The memories of 68 are a lot closer to the surface. You also have powerful trade unions in certain sectors. You've still got greater amounts of state ownership in terms of energy and other parts of infrastructure as well. And that kind of means that there's a certain amount of shit that French people just aren't going to take. Now, I'm not presenting it as some kind of radical tycoonist utopia, far from it. But there is just a lot less passivity. The last riots we saw in this country really were in 2011 in response to the police shooting of Mark Duggan, but also they were an uprising against austerity. There weren't really many voices apart from perhaps Darkest Howe, perhaps Gary Young, who took the concerns of those people particularly seriously. They were roundly decried in the so-called progressive media and the so-called left media at the time in a way that I don't think anger in the streets of France is so derided by the self-appointed tribunes of the left. And that's why we've got high energy bills. I think that's very, a very interesting point. Let's go to our next story. The Bank of England has raised interest rates to 0.5% in an attempt to control inflation, which now stands at 5.4%. That's the highest it's been since 1992. In April, it's expected to leap again, this time to 7.25%. According to the bank, this means that the value of a household's disposable income will suffer the largest drop since records began. This Resolution Foundation graph, based on a Bank of England forecast, shows household disposable incomes are set to fall by 2% in 2022. That's a larger drop than after the global financial crisis and the largest drop since at least 1949. It works out at around £1,000 per year per household. So what was the Bank of England Governor Andrew Bailey's solution? What we can do is try to prevent... It becoming, it's spreading, it become inflation spreading, inflation becoming more ingrained in the system. You're trying to get into people's heads and ask them not to ask for too high pay rise. Well, is, is, is broadly, I mean, broadly, yes, uh, really? I will say that. Uh, in the sense of saying, we do need to see in a moderation of wage rises. Now, that's painful. I don't want to, in any sense, you know, sugar that message. It is painful. But we need, we need to see that in order to get through this problem more quickly. So while the value of the money in your pocket goes down, whatever you do, don't ask for a pay rise so that you can afford the, the same amount of things as you did before inflation increased. And this is all from a man paid £575,000 a year. It might not be painful for him. It's hard to imagine a more tone-deaf comment. Let them eat cake. I think it's sort of on a similar um, level to that one. Bailey's argument, put simply, is that the way to control inflation is to stop people spending. And you can do that in two ways. Raise interest rates so that borrowing is more expensive and or control incomes so that people have less to spend. But is that the only way to rein in inflation? On Twitter, the Financial Times European economics commentator Martin Sandbu asked, 
Genuine question, why does the Governor of the Bank of England encourage restraint in wage demands, but not call for restraint in businesses' attempts to protect their profit margins? Intellectual bias, ideology, greater resignation with reference to price than wage setting, or something else? That is a very good question. Why is it that workers are told to forego pay rises to protect their incomes, but bosses aren't told to forego increasing prices to protect their profits? I spoke earlier today to James Meadway. Rishi Sunak made very clear that his priority is protecting profits and maybe he'll throw, I mean, almost literally crumbs at a few people in terms of support. But in the in the end, it's about these, we must protect the profits that have been made by some companies, very, very large energy companies out of the current spike in gas prices and everything else, including government's own tax revenue is very much not a priority. So that's partly why it's happening there. Some of it is, is a sort of ideological problem or, or a confusion, I think, in some economists' heads when you look at uh, what Andrew Bailey, governor of the Bank of England, was saying. Yeah, in his head is the idea that we're getting inflation because wages are going up. And if you look at what's happened to wages the last 10 years, real wages have fallen in Britain for most people. If you look at what's happening right now, their real wages, the amount that you can actually buy with the money you get is dropping. So people are getting worse off because of uh, inflation. And he's turning around and saying, oh, well, this is kind of like 1970s or something where, you know, wages go up and this is putting prices up. Prices are going up right now in particular because the international price of gas has gone up. If you take a pay cut, if you sort of say, oh, well, I won't ask for, for more money uh, this year, that won't make any difference to the amount that, uh, that you're paying for Russian gas or gas from anywhere else in the world. It's completely nonsensical to do this. So it's quite heavily ideological. And it also reflects the, the real balance of opinion, the real ideals of the government that we've got, which in the end is to protect profits, to keep the system as it is, working in the interests of people right at the top of society. And it's not about looking after the great majority. And what is the correct policy response? I suppose what, what Martin Sambu is suggesting is that instead of calling for pay restraint for workers, you could call for price restraint for bosses. You could say, could you keep your prices down even if to maintain your profit margins you need to raise them? Should we be calling for price controls or, or telling businesses they can't raise prices in order to control inflation? Yes, we should. On, on at least some products, some things that we're paying for, there's a kind of weird inflation at the minute that it's it's driven really, really strongly by actually quite a, f a limited number of different things we buy. So gas is a really obvious one. Gas has shot up in price over the last 12 months or so. So capping that price that people have to pay on their gas bills makes sense. And this is what's happened in France. This is what's happened right the way across Europe. Uh, Portugal is capping uh, domestic energy prices. Norway has introduced a system where the government actually pays like 80% of your bill. Other countries are doing this. And it's a cost of government, but you put that cost onto the profiteers. So that's the companies making really huge profits. Shell, $14 billion in the last year, for example. You dump the costs on them and you say they can take the hit and everybody else is protected. And that's a price control on gas. More generally, what you want to see happen is exactly as Martin Sambu says, which is, a, look, if you want to deal with inflation, we need to pay people more. We've had a decade now of falling real wages, just about, for most people. So what we really want to happen is if prices are going up, people should be paid more to cope with that. And that means redistribution. That means, in effect, you're going to take some money from people right at the top of society and distribute it to everyone else. So it's the exact opposite of what Andrew Bailey, the Bank of England governor, was saying, that we don't want 
wages to be suppressed because it's not going to do anything about inflation. It's not going to make the blindest bit of difference to the price of coffee that we're buying from Brazil or gas that you're getting from Qatar or Russia or wherever it might be. It doesn't make the blindest bit of difference to that price. What we need is a big increase in wages for people who are working in Britain right now and control on some prices, including, for example, the price of gas. How many things are we controlling the prices of? Is it just sort of five big commodities or is it going to have to be something more extensive than that? I don't think it's really feasible to start saying, OK, we're going to control every single price out there. You can get a sort of fantasy where government is able to do this. But if there's something that's so crucial to people's living standards, like how much you're paying for it, energy, how much you're paying to heat your house in the middle of winter, then it makes sense to say we're going to control that because this is something that's actually socially obviously quite a big gain to, to do. And, and by the way, it's a you know it's a side argument, but you can see this argument starting to bubble up in kind of academic economics now. Is it a good idea to control some prices? Does it have a positive impact on the distribution of wealth in society? And the answer is basically yes. I mean clearly it does. You end up ideally taking money away from extremely wealthy people who run Shell and making sure other people have more money in their pockets. So I don't think you need a general system of price controls. The actual way you want to deal with this, in the medium term at least, is a big old pay rise uh, for everyone of the kind that Boris Johnson promised. I mean, he's still prime minister. Presumably the promise still holds. He's absolutely right. Everyone in Britain, you know, the poorest 90%, let's say, certainly those right at the, 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 the poorer end of the income distribution should be getting a big fat pay increase right now to deal with these, pay, these, these um, price increases. That's the quickest, most effective way to deal with the kind of inflation we have. And all this nonsense, basically ideological, uh, saying that, oh, it's wage increases that are driving price rises now. Absolutely, absolutely rubbish. It's very clear what needs to happen. And the government, if it cared about what happened to most people in Britain, it would be doing something like this straight away. Big increase in the minimum wage, control the price of gas. Two obvious things to do. We've been talking about a statement from the governor of the Bank of England. Obviously, he also has a pretty powerful role and material power over the economy. The Bank of England have just increased interest rates. Do you think that the attitude which is summed up in that statement from him is directing government policy? And does that mean that even if you know people don't want to accept lower wages, we're going to be forced to? The steer from government is to try and squash wage growth. Now, this has been made, you know, there's a leaked document from the, the Treasury just, just before Christmas, where it talks about the need to restrain wage growth in the public sector so as to discipline the private sector. So, so in other words, I paraphrase slightly, but in other words, you hold back wage growth in the public sector, which government can control. Uh, and if you notice the last 10 years of austerity, government has always tried to restrain wage growth in the public sector. And by making people paid less effectively in real terms in the public sector, you're going to try and undermine wage growth in the private sector as well. So, so there is a general steer not just from the Bank of England and, and what its government has just said, but also from government to say, look, we're going to try and restrain wages over this period. Now, this clashes somewhat with what Boris Johnson was saying just a few months ago. And there's, there's a tension, I think, inside what this government is trying to do. But it also says to me that there's going to be a real fight over this. Like We have certainly not seen at all the last of the crisis around the price of gas, around price rises in general. All the forecasts say price is going to continue rising at a really quite high rate for at least the first part of this year. And my own view is that they may the rate of inflation may come down a bit, but it's going to stay high. So we're going to have all of these issues not going away, not now, not anytime soon. And that means there's going to be a real fight over people's living standards and the amount of money they get in the pay packet. And that is really where union organisation comes in. It's essential 
that we now build unions absolutely everywhere, particularly in the private sector, where they're actually very weak in this country. And we start to fight for pay increases and people need to cut through this layers of rubbish that we're going to start getting about how pay rises are contributing to inflation. Absolutely, absolutely wrong. The inflation we have now is driven by really big international factors. The crisis in the supply of gas, in the supply of food, uh, in extreme weather, knocking out semiconductor production in Taiwan, you know, this sort of thing. It's got nothing to do with how much people are getting paid in Britain right now. That was James Meadway, whose excellent column you can check out on NavarraMedia.com. Straight to our next story. Spokesperson for the US State Department Ned Price has revealed to the world a piece of intelligence gathered on Russian plans in Ukraine. We have previously noted our strong concerns regarding Russian disinformation and the likelihood that Moscow might create, seek to create, a false flag operation to initiate military activity. Now, we can say that the United States has information that Russia is planning to stage fabricated attacks by Ukrainian military or intelligence forces as a pretext for a further invasion of Ukraine. One possible option the Russians are considering, and which we made public today, involves the production of a propaganda video, a video with graphic scenes of false explosions, depicting corpses, crisis actors pretending to be mourners, and images of destroyed locations or military equipment, entirely fabricated by Russian intelligence. To be clear, The production of this propaganda video is one of a number of options that the Russian government is developing as a fake pretext to initiate and potentially justify military aggression against Ukraine. We don't know if Russia will necessarily use this or another option in the coming days. We are publicizing it now, however, in order to lay bare the extent of Russia's destabilizing actions towards Ukraine and to dissuade Russia from continuing this dangerous campaign and ultimately launching a military attack. Russia has signaled it's willing to continue diplomatic talks as a means to de-escalate, but actions such as these suggest otherwise. Associated Press reporter Matt Lee was listening very carefully to the spokesperson's exact words. So you said actions such as these suggest otherwise, suggest meaning they, they suggest they're not interested in talks and they're going to go ahead with some kind of a... What action are you talking about? One, the actions I've just pointed to, uh, the, fact, action the, the fact that Russia continues to engage uh, in disinformation well, uh, campaigns. You made an allegation that they might do that. Have they actually done it? Uh, what we know, Matt, is what we what I have just said, that they have engaged in this activity, well, uh, in this planning well, activity. But, activity. But let me let me because, because obviously this is not this is not the first time we've made uh, these reports public. You'll remember that just a few well, weeks I'm ago. I'm sorry, you, made, made, made what report public? If you'll let me finish, I will okay. tell you what report we made okay. public. Uh, we told you a few weeks ago that we have information indicating Russia also has already prepositioned a group of operatives to conduct a false flag operation in eastern Ukraine. So that, Matt, to your question, is an action that Russia has already well, taken. It's an action that you say that they have taken, but you have shown no evidence to, 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 to confirm that. And I'm going to get to the next question here, which is, what is the evidence that they, I mean, this is like crisis actors, really? This is like Alex Jones territory you're getting into now. Um, what evidence do you have to support the idea that there is some propaganda film in the, in, in the making? Matt, this is derived uh, from information known to the U.S. government, intelligence information that we have declassified. I think you well, know. Okay, well, where, where is it? Where, where is this information? 
It is intelligence information that we have declassified. Well, where is it? Where is the declassified information? I just delivered it. No, you made a series of allegations and would statements. You, would you like us to print it out the topper? Because you will see a transcript of this briefing that you can print out for that, yourself. That's not evidence, Ned. That's you saying it. That's not evidence. I'm sorry. <laughs> what would you like, Matt? I, I would like to see some proof that you that 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 that, that, that you can show that that Matt, you have that, been that, that shows you, that 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 you, shows that the Russians are doing this. Ned, I've been doing this for. A I long know that time. was my point. As, you as, you as have you, know. you you have been doing this for quite a while. You know I that have. when we declassify intelligence That's information, right. and I we do so in, in a means. A we do and so. I, and, we do so with an eye to protecting that, that sources and methods. Not going to fall. I, I remember a lot of things. So where, where where is the declassified information other than you coming out here and saying? Matt, I'm sorry you don't like the format, uh, but we it's have declassified. It's not the format, it's the content. I'm it, sorry you don't like the content. I'm sorry you, I'm sorry like you are doubting is. the information that is in the possession of the U.S. government. I'm sorry that you are doubting the information that is in possession of the U.S. government, says the U.S. government spokesperson. Now, I don't know about you, but I'm incredibly grateful at least someone is questioning that information. Two things of note there, which Matt Lee expertly honed in on. The first, the spokesperson's elision from planning a disinformation campaign to actually engaging in one. And second, the fact that the spokesperson provided no evidence for anything he said. We are supposed to take Ned Price and the American intelligence services at their word. Anyone who followed the build-up to the Iraq war will know that's a very dangerous thing to do. Of course, much of the media has been willing to repeat the charges made by Price and even go beyond them. The New York Times led with this headline, US exposes what it says is Russian effort to fabricate pretext for invasion. Now, to me, an effort is a lot more concrete than a plan that hasn't yet been realized. It sounds like an action, something that's actually happening. Similarly, here's the headline in The Times. They say Vladimir Putin's staged atrocity plan to justify Russian invasion of the Ukraine. Also The Guardian. Russia plans very graphic fake video as pretext for Ukraine invasion, US claims. Now, in both cases, what was presented by the, the spokesperson as one amongst many possible actions has been upgraded to a firm plan. The verb plans has a sense of a clear intention to make the particular video that was described. And a reminder, evidence supporting any of these claims has yet to be seen. Liz Truss, Foreign Secretary of the UK, also released a statement. She says, this is clear and shocking evidence of Russia's unprovoked aggression and underhand activity to destabilize Ukraine. This bellicose intent towards a sovereign democratic country is completely unacceptable, and we condemn it in the strongest possible terms. The UK and our allies will continue to expose Russian subterfuge and propaganda and call it out for what it is. The only way forward is for Russia to de-escalate, desist and commit to a diplomatic pathway. Here, what was one possible plan amongst others becomes underhand activity to destabilize Ukraine. Now, of course, I, I don't want to suggest that Russia isn't capable of misinformation campaigns or false flag operations. But Matt Lee was absolutely right to press the spokesperson so hard because, as he says in that clip, he remembers WMDs in 
Iraq. In the case of that war, the claim that Iraq had weapons of mass destruction and was prepared to use them was a major component in the case of the illegal war conducted by the US and the UK. And the media then, rather than investigating the claim, jumped on the bandwagon. In 2004, the New York Times had to issue this apology for its coverage in the run-up to that war. They wrote, we have found a number of instances of coverage that was not as rigorous as it should have been. In some cases, information that was controversial then and seems questionable now was insufficiently qualified or allowed to stand unchallenged. In fact, the New York Times published at least 28 articles containing false information and banging the drum for war between October 2001 and March 2004, and they were far from alone. What's more, it isn't like the US is a stranger to misinformation. In 2016, it was reported that the Pentagon had paid UK PR firm Bell Pottinger $540 million to run a covert propaganda campaign following the invasion of Iraq. They created news packages in the style of Arabic news agencies and also made fake Al-Qaeda terrorist videos that could be used to track the people who viewed them. But when Matt Lee asked the hard question of the State Department, this was the response. What is the evidence that you have that suggests that, that, that the Russians are even planning this? Matt, I you, mean, I'm not you, saying that they're not, but you just come out and say this and expect us to, 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 to believe it without you showing a shred of evidence that it's actually true. Other than when I ask, or when anyone else asked, what's the information? You said, well, I just gave it to you, which was just you making a statement. Matt, you said yourself, you've been in this business for quite a long time. You know that when we make information, uh, intelligence information public, we do so uh, in, a, in a way that protects sensitive sources and methods. You also know that we do so, we declassify information only when we're confident in that information. Yeah, you if, you doubt, if you doubt the, the credibility of the U.S. government, of the British government, uh, of other governments and want to, uh, you know, find uh, solace in information that uh, the solace? Russians are putting out, uh, that is, uh, <laughs> that is for you to do. Basically, there, the accusation is that the reporter is not only not a patriot, but is a Russian sympathizer. He's just repeating Russian talking points. Ash, I guess it's important to remember in these situations that nothing sells newspapers and advertising slots like a war. Well, indeed, but I don't even think that it's that well thought through. I think it's a lot more craven than that. There is a very recent history, if you want to look at the war on terror, of journalists forgetting what their role actually is. So instead of scrutinizing absolutely every piece of information that comes their way, no matter what the source, and making sure that the public gets the most rigorously verified material possible, during the war on terror, there was a sense of a salon culture being cultivated between pro-war think tanks, politicians, aides, journalists, and what you might want to call thinkfluencers. So there were sort of regular parties being hosted where you'd find Christopher Hitchens deep in conversation with somebody from uh, the State Department in the US. This was fairly common. And it's, I think, easy to forget just how outlandish some of the claims being printed in legitimate establishment legacy media were at the time. There were claims that Saddam Hussein had mobile chemical laboratories making weapons of mass, distract, uh, mass destruction on the back of trucks, and they were driving around the desert completely mobile. Now, of course, there was absolutely no evidence of this 
ever found. And just hearing it, that there are mobile WMD laboratories on the back of trucks just seems completely, you know, farcical, fantastical. But that's what was being pumped out into the public sphere. And just from my own standpoint now, you can see that some of these networks, very hawkish, you know, liberal or neocon journalists, that those networks are being fired up again with regards to Russia and Ukraine. Now, I'm not saying this, and I also shouldn't have to say this. I'm not saying any of this because, you know, deep down, my darkest desire is to see Putin take over Kiev. But it's, I think, deeply sad that journalists who want to scrutinize pro-war narratives, pro-intervention narratives, have to in some way argue for their own sense of, you know, patriotism, loyalty, or saying, no, I'm not actually a douge of the Kremlin. I just think that we can't trust what's coming from our own governments in some cases. But the same networks are being fired up. Uh, It was really striking to me. I was on Moral Maze a couple of weeks ago, and it was Anne McElvoy and Matthew Taylor, you know, making these very hawkish cases for intervening in Ukraine and against Russia. And I just thought, oh my God, everything old is new again. Yeah, I mean, it is, it's worrying, isn't it? And you do see the media kind of, they don't seem to have learned very much at all. Like On that run up to the Iraq war, there's a, a really good book by Robert Draper called To Start a War. And in that, what's super interesting is the way that the intelligence services were told, look, you missed 9-11. So what you now have to do is imagine constantly what could possibly happen. So they sort of set up these working groups where you have to think of all the, the possibilities that could possibly damage American interests. And then what happens is that, group which is working out possibilities comes to mean, oh, we have intelligence that this crazy thing is going to happen. And then the media end up reporting that there are, as you say, mobile units housing weapons of mass destruction, which is why the inspectors can't find them because they're constantly moving. And that was just a complete fabrication, which managed to sort of stretch from being this thing that we've imagined, or we've got some source who happens to hate the the Saddam's regime and wants to install a government of their own tutelage. And then it just gets reported by the media sort of unquestioningly, super worrying. And why, I mean, I'm very grateful for for journalists like that man from the Associated Press we just showed you. Final story. Navarro Media have heard rumblings from inside The Guardian over an appointment announced internally. In an email leaked to us, Editor-in-Chief Catherine Viner introduces their new senior political correspondent. She writes, I'm pleased to announce that M&A Sinmaz is joining The Guardian soon from the Daily Mail as senior reporter. Please join me in congratulating her. That The Guardian is employing a Daily Mail journalist might already raise eyebrows. They are two papers which have very different values. But these things do happen. I'm sure there are good journalists who start at the mail because that was a job that was going at the time. They end up at a a better paper. But a quick search suggests Sinmaz isn't a rare progressive Daily Mail journalist. Her articles include this following the murder of MP Joe Cox. The headline asks, did neo-Nazi murder Joe over fear he'd lose council house he grew up in? Terrorist thought property could end up being occupied by an immigrant family and the MP wouldn't help him. Her co-author in that piece, Chris Greenwood, is now head of media at the Metropolitan Police. In 2018, Sinmaz broke this story, Corbyn's Reef at Graves of Munich Terrorists. Now, I, I imagine you'll remember this story. It was a very big deal, and it was a hit job, based on the fact that in 2014, Corbyn laid a reef at a memorial in Tunisia. 
Corbyn was attending an event in honour of those who were killed in a 1985 Israeli airstrike on the PLO headquarters in Tunis. Now, some PLO members were involved in terrorism, as is the case with many liberation movements. But the PLO were also the internationally recognised representatives of the Palestinian people. That was recognised by the UN, for example. For his part, Corbyn has always denied any involvement in memorialising anyone involved in terrorism. And the BBC reported at the time that no photographs exist of him laying a reef at those particular graves. Nonetheless, of course, the damage was done. The article was regularly cited as proof of Corbyn's terrorist sympathies and of his supposed anti-Semitism. Again, you might say, Sin Maslin was employed by the Mail. She could have just been assigned this piece. And perhaps she now regrets writing this pit job on a Labour leader. Well, this is Sinmaz's Twitter header. So, far from having simply had to do a dirty job at the mail, she's obviously quite proud of that story. Interestingly, at The Guardian, she'll be joining another Daily Mail alumna, Faye Schlesinger. Schlesinger worked as a news reporter at The Daily Mail from 2008 to 2011. She was appointed head of national news at The Guardian in 2020. A source at The Guardian tells her that there is consternation across the newspaper about hiring Sinmaz, with people viewing the decision as undermining their values as an organisation. All of this information was broken by my colleagues Rivka Brown and Aaron Bastani, who have published an article about this on navaramedia.com. They go into this hire and what it says about The Guardian's new direction under editor Catherine Viner in some detail. And Rivka joins me now to tell us more. Thank you for joining me tonight, Rivka. Great piece. Can I start by asking you, what's this about? In your piece, you say there is one impression that sort of hiring people from the Daily Mail is just that The Guardian wants to write more punchy tabloid style pieces. The other interpretation is that this is about a swing to the right, away from its supposedly left liberal values. Which one is it? Well, I think it's both. The Guardian, in terms of its swing away from the liberal left, Sinmaz could as easily have been a Guardian reporter uh, when she was writing uh, stories about Jeremy Corbyn. We know very well that throughout Corbyn's tenure, there were a, a lot of very personal stories about Jeremy Corbyn and very few about his kind of policy proposals. Uh, in fact, there was a 2018 study by the Media Reform Coalition that suggested that Jeremy Corbyn was the subject of more, or in fact, the Guardian printed more falsehoods uh, and more incorrect stories around the IHRA definition of anti-Semitism, which formed uh, a key part of the Labour anti-Semitism crisis, than the Daily Mail had. And so in terms of kind of a swing away from left liberal values or kind of commitment to, to truth, I don't think it's anything particularly new. I do think, though, it is new that they are hiring a number of journalists with that kind of more, as I describe in the report, kind of feisty, fiery, spiky, belligerent style of news gathering and news management. That's a reflection of a concern, I think, that's been felt by Guardian managers for a while, that the newsroom is too kind of nice and genteel and polite um, and doesn't go after stories in the same uh, kind of aggressive way that other Fleet Street outlets do. And that, I think, goes hand in hand with Catherine Viner's anxiety, which we talk about in the report, about being seen as respectable, uh, both to the kind of politicians and political class, but also to the rest of Fleet Street and the kind of journalistic class. And so there is an attempt to emulate and to go after the kind of stories as well as the kind of style of other mainstream outlets. You know, one uh, journalist at the, at the paper described to me that once upon a time, The Guardian was relatively happy to 
plow its own furrow, to do its own thing. Um, but now it, it seems to be kind of playing a game of catch up with a lot of the rest of Fleet Street, basically. Um, and I think Sinmaz's appointment, as well as Scherzinger's, is a reflection of that anxiety and inadequacy, that kind of inferiority complex. Your piece also had um, some interesting insight into Kaf Viner's, I suppose, desire to be liked by Keir Starmer. Could you talk about that a bit? Sure. Well, I mean, I think The Guardian, you know, it's had a really hard time. It's not since 2007, really, that it's had a, a leader, whether of the opposition or of the government, that it could really get behind. It's just been a string of either boring Labour leaders or Tories. And obviously, I think Corbyn really fell into the former camp. I don't really think their objection to him was hugely moral. I think it was mainly that he just wasn't as sexy as Tony Blair. And so I think, you know, they've been waiting for a while and then Keir Starmer comes along and he'll kind of do, you know, this is the horse that they've decided that this is the horse that they're going to back. And as I say in the report, I've heard tell that Catherine Viner felt personally quite spurned by failing to receive an invite to a dinner party with Keir Starmer. You know, they are trying to ingratiate themselves with the Labour leader because they believe, possibly rightly, given the polling at the moment, that he will be the next prime minister of this country and they want to back a winning horse for once. But I think also this is a reflection of something we touch on in the report too, which is a shifting way in which The Guardian conceives of its mission as a paper, away from the idea of the paper as a, a vehicle for informing its readers and directed primarily at its readers, at ordinary people, and towards a kind of bastion of influence among the chattering classes. It wants to be read, Catherine Viner wants The Guardian to be read in the tea rooms of the Houses of Commons rather than in people's living rooms or on their phones or whatever. I mean, I'm, I'm sure technically she wants both, but it's a it's a kind of prioritisation, I suppose, and winning the kind of hearts and minds of people that matter, of influences, of being a gender setting is part of that. And I want to ask you, I suppose, about some of the conversations you had with people inside The Guardian. I know you spoke to lots of people for this piece, because I would imagine that lots of people join that paper because they want to do that hard-hitting investigative journalism that The Guardian used to be known for, you know, pieces which were critical of British foreign policy, for example. Are people quite despondent that that doesn't seem to be the paper they've joined? Yeah, and to be honest, like the overwhelming feeling that I got from people that I spoke to there, people that were still there and people that had left, it was just a sense of this is so bloody boring. Like I'm pitching stories that are really interesting and getting absolutely nowhere because they won't appeal to the mainstream, according to my editor. Who's the mainstream? And I, I do I do really think that the 2016 disbanding of the investigative unit by Kath Viner about a year after she started as editor-in-chief set a bit of a tone for this. She did then reform it, but it's nothing like it was before. This is the investigative unit that broke the Snowden stories in 2013, that, ha that was being raided by GCHQ, you know. It's impossible to imagine something like that happening now. And work that is done in that vein, like Panama Papers, um, is done in a kind of coalition or a consortium with other journalistic outlets. And so, you know, the idea of The Guardian being a spearhead and a, a pioneer of that hard-hitting, dangerous and challenging journalism is really difficult to imagine nowadays. And I think it's, it's a great shame. And there's a lot of investigative journalistic talent, which is really lost on The Guardian. And a lot of people have left. Mm, I think it's also important to note, you know, while while the Panama Papers, I think, is very valuable, important journalism, it doesn't it doesn't challenge sort of the the UK security establishment or the American security establishment in the same way that, as you say, those the, the, the WikiLeaks stories did. Ruka, thank you so much for joining me this evening, and um, I really do recommend all of our viewers go and read that piece. Excellent bit of reporting, some great gossip on the Guardian, and as I say, you know, it's, it's quite worrying, isn't it, that the the leading left liberal paper in Britain 
seems to have such little commitment to progressivism or liberalism or holding anyone to account. But there we are. Rivka, I'm sure we'll speak very soon. Thank you for watching tonight. Um, we'll be back on Monday at 7pm. Have a great weekend. You've been watching Tisky Sour on Navarra Media. Good night. This broadcast is brought to you by Navarra Media. Go to navaramedia.com slash support.